Podcast. I am your host Shane Hazen. Coming up on today's episode, Robert Grigsby Wilson. He edited uh, two. He edited both a feature and a short that is playing at Sundance this week. Um, but first up, what I watched this week. Um, I didn't get to watch much this week. I'm uh, recording this intro slightly early. Um, I'm gonna be out of town uh, this weekend, so um, uh, really the only thing I watched this week was uh, Godfather Part Two. The um, very obscure, no one's heard of God Francis Ford Coppola's Godfather Part Two, um, the infinitely rewatchable. The Godfather movies always um, always make me hungry. Um, yeah, um, the um, this does remind me though that um, if you haven't seen it uh, or, re- or checked it out yet, uh, Eve Babbitts has a new anthology out of uh, miscellaneous. Um, uh, unpublished essays of hers um called uh, uh i used to be interesting and um there's there's a really cool essay in there uh where she she's in godfather part two she's in the uh, senate hearing scenes as an extra a little featured extra because she went to a hollywood high with uh, i think it was fred caruso was uh, the producer one big casting guy in the 70s and um it's 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 just great. First off, if you've ever read Eve Babbitt before, she's not necessarily a film writer, but she writes about L.A. very well, and she's she she gives herself the reputation as kind of a Joan Didion, but not. And but um, if you read her, she's she's definitely like a writer's writer. She's um, the the writer speaking of writers writers one she I always think of is James Salter even though the the difference between the two of them is he's very chiseled and while she's very chiseled in her prose too um, it's she gives a sense of always being effortless well anyway in this essay uh, sh- she talks about hanging out with Coppola in the seventies uh, around this kind of Barney's beanery scene and um, she very um she dated like um Steve Martin um maybe um Jim Morrison but uh she dated Harrison Ford in the early 70s and there's a really funny story in her uh biography uh where uh she finally sees Star Wars and I don't think she, either she said it or her friend said it because whenever Han Solo first came on screen she goes that's my pot dealer um but she tells she talks about um the Barty's Beanery scene where everyone wanted to write a great American novel, uh, very similar to uh, what you would say with the uh, expatriates in uh, Paris. And um, she ta- talks about Coppola probably did it. This is this is it. Coppola's doing it. And she talks very personally about Coppola and some really cool conversations. And it's just, I can't remember having read anything like um, about the making of Godfather Part Two that hasn't, been mythologized you just we if you if you've read about the making the godfather you've heard the same stories over and over like oh yeah coppola was gonna get fired a weekend and he um 
he hid in the bath uh the bathroom and uh, was in a stall and heard crew making fun of it and he lifted his legs and um he was trying to convince robert evans to let him keep stuff in so he cut it to the bone and robert evans is just like you took the uh uh, you took the uh, Italian food out of this or whatever. Uh, you know, we've heard these these same stories. And um, there's a real interesting neediness. And it's also it's also neat for me just because Barney's Beanery, weirdly, I think it's a different location, but was the first restaurant I ate at in L.A. So I did not get the sense that there was a um, literary uh, legend around that. So, um Anyway, uh, check out the, um, I would, Eve Babbitt's, uh, check anything she's written out. Um, There's also a um, biography that came out last year called uh, Hollywood's Eve, which is a, you know, inversion of her very first book uh, by Lily Unalik. And um, I like, as much as I'm raving about Eve Babbitt's prose, and um, the biography is one of those biographies where, there's so much love and enthusiasm in it that it's almost as good, if not better, to read something that than uh, maybe I not that not go, go that far. They're both they're both really equally great, but it, the biography equals a lot of uh, E. Babbitt's E. Babbitt's uh, writing too. So both are recommended. <laughs> Robert Grigsby Wilson is on today's show. Um, he is uh, he has he edited a feature and a short that are both playing at Sundance this week. And um, I mainly wanted to talk to him just because I remembered um, my solo only trip to Sundance, and uh, there was a lot of curious posturing on my part where I wanted to pretend I was old hat about it. But honestly, it was pretty wide-eyed idealistic experience um like i couldn't even afford to fly in i drove there and was the best choice because i've never driven in the rocky mountains in the winter and it was just positively majestic driving in and i just wondered if uh robert was gonna have the same um idealism going into he's been to Sundance before he's mainly been to labs but this is the first time a feature of his has been in there so we don't know each other. It, it, at the top of the interview, we, we both we acknowledged that early on. And um, we spent a lot of the interview also just name dropping to see, do you know this person? Do you know this person? Do you know this person? And by the end of the interview, I hope you guys stick around just because um, this is how editors talk to each other. It's, ve- or, you know, a lot of the um, jockeying about where you are in your career and things like that, um, things you assess whenever we're, uh, figuring out what kind of movies we should be doing or not, um, what kind of work we should be doing. Um, uh, it gets very a very honest uh, conversation between two editors. Um, I, I hope you stick around and listen to it. I, I got a knock-knock Sorry. joke. Or it's not a knock-knock joke, but... Um, my friend, one of my other friends told me this. How many editors does it take to change a light bulb? How many? Well, if you change the light bulb, then you got to change the ceiling around yeah, it. Yeah, and you got to do it. Yeah. You're just going to have to yeah. start all over. <laughs> do you? I wish that weren't true. <laughs> do you? Um, yeah. Your your name Grigsby, uh, Robert Grigsby Wilson. Yes. Grigsby was added because yes. uh, people were confusing you for a common name of Robert Wilson. 
Yes, absolutely. I mean, it came along pretty early on when I was just trying to set myself up on IMDb and trying to put my first entry up there. And I realized I think there was like 25 Robert Wilsons Uh-oh. at the time. And I was like, this is never going to work. And uh, Grigsby is my mother's last name and always uh, a little bit more differentiating than uh, than my generic waspy robert wilson name so i uh that's so not even like I your like real middle name too helps. no 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 it is sorry it's oh. my mother's it's oh. it's my it's my middle name it's my mother's last name it's like it's okay it's yeah it's to to make me a little bit more identifiable of course now i just think it reads like i'm like some sort of bear british baron or something like that there's a weird thing yeah. of people putting their middle names into their credits like especially when you know someone formally and then you see their credit on screen you're like oh that's that's your middle name, especially in the movies. Yeah. We sh- I should backtrack. We don't actually know each other. This is actually formerly our first time meeting. We are on a uh, Facebook group of... Oh, you're just saluting me. That's cool. Uh, we are on a, a Facebook group of indie editors. and um, But uh, on the on that thread that I saw, you were one of the first people that mentioned that you had something at Sundance. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. Well, first off, I had this conversation with a few other people. D- do you know a bunch of people that got into Sundance? Like in your daily life, editor. I mean, I, I yeah, in my day to day life. I mean, the New York film community is pretty small. The editor community is pretty small, and so there are a couple people that are more reliable than others. But for me, it's my first time having a feature film that I've edited there, so it's a big deal for me. For some of my friends, they've been before, so it's okay. Maybe they're a little bit more like, eh. but yeah. yeah. Um, what is is there a background to your question do you think i was just uh, like in new york and my, a friend specifically yeah. it was complained that he didn't know anybody that got anything in he's more he was more of a doc editor but and he was talking about yeah. certain things he'd um seen rough cuts of that he thought were amazing and he was annoyed that they hadn't gotten in but he was just saying yeah yeah and i mean i yeah m- most of my communities uh austin but not thoroughly so i didn't i didn't really know anybody from there but it, Maybe it's just me being a hermit, but um, so you had been for um, you've been to Sundance, you've been to uh, uh, Sundance before though for uh, Director's Lab. Yeah, so I, I mean, I've had for a while, you know, I've had projects I've assisted on there before, or I've been an additional editor on something, or I'd cut a short film uh, that was there in 2014. And for a while, I, I think for like three or four years, I had a project that I had worked on that was there. And then uh, through the work that I had done as an editor, uh, you know, just in myself cutting little indies, I got the attention of the uh, Mankey Fellowship, which is uh, a program, a year-long program that Sunday, the Sundance Institute runs uh, through the director's lab where you apply and and you're given all this mentorship, and then you're also invited to go edit at the labs. I did not get that uh, fellowship, but it did put me on their radar, and because of that, they invited me to the labs uh, to edit in 2017. Is that in Park City? It, it is not in Park City. It's at the resort, which is just down the street. They have screenings there as part of the festival, but it's so far removed from Park City that it's really a separate place to go there just like there are screenings in salt lake city during sundance there's also screenings at the at the sundance resort but the sundance resort like i said is about 45 minutes away were you there during winter or was this a different time of year no it's during the summer so the director's lab happens during the summer 
there are two screenwriters labs and I'm not hundred percent. I've got my facts right on this, but I will just uh, attempt it uh, that they accept people through the, through the screenwriters lab app, uh, process that is happening actually right now, I believe at the Institute at the resort. So there are, I think like 16 screenplays currently in development at the resort. Uh, and then they call that number down to eight directing fellows. And those people are invited over the summer to go to, to come back and work with a production team that's brought out uh, to sort of flesh out their ideas. It's not really meant in any way to actually end up in the film, but it's an attempt for these first-time filmmakers. Well, famously, to... like Tarantino uh, went to Reservoir Dogs uh, with uh, the, yes. the Sundance with the early yeah. that they would shoot on videotape at the time, but um... yeah, exactly. Now they now they shoot on, on like a Sony A7s or something like that. It's it's uh, yeah, and like P.T. Anderson and Ryan Coogler and Ben Zeitlin from Beasts of the Southern Wild and and Miranda July and like there's a long long list of successful filmmakers that have come out of this program. I know the other weird and, thing about uh, the, uh, the resort itself. Uh, the year I went, uh, the uh, Redford uh, gets all the directors together at the uh, first and speaks to them right before the beginning of the festival. And I remember uh, yeah. the director of my movie talking about that. But um, no, the thing I was... I was oh, so you've been too? Yeah. I, you've I, been too? I, uh, oh, I didn't realize. I added a feature that was there in 2016, I think. It was in the next festival, or okay. the next part. Um, uh, no, I was... What feature I, was that? It was called First Girl I Loved. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. No, the, th the thing, I was I was excited for you, which, I mean, so, I, I, I guess if you're in Brooklyn right now, is there snow on the ground in Brooklyn? Uh, it just snowed, but... Uh, because I'm just getting back from my honeymoon, I missed the snow. Oh yeah, we're, we we should talk about the honeymoon too. But um, no, I just <laughs> I I drove up. I didn't fly in. I drove up, and it was a majestic drive. Much less once you get there, like um, just the mountain uh, snow. Like there, you just realize, oh, this is why everyone goes skiing there. Like there's the, the, mm -hmm. the whole story where they moved it from summer to winter to try to uh. uh get people from LA out to come out for skiing initially but um so yeah all right but you're there over two movies yeah this year I have a short and a feature at Sundance the feature film uh 40 year old version the director and I met at the labs in 2017 and when she, she got the money to take her film into production she asked me to come along and edit it and then the short film also came out of the uh, Indigenous Peoples Labs, which is a smaller version of the Sundance Labs. That isn't what brought me to the project. I would just became like a word of mouth kind of thing. But then when I saw that, I, you know, caught onto that and was like, oh, she, we have some overlap there in terms of our network at Sundance. And, and the director, Erica Tremblay, also is just a really great filmmaker she is from Oklahoma, Native American from Oklahoma, and um, uh, Seneca Cayuga, and uh, okay, has a very interesting story about her mom's experience growing up teaching kids on the reservation. So it's autobiographical, so, uh, short. Yeah, semi-autobiographical, sort of about her mother more than about her, but it's a really personal story to her, and uh, it's really nice. I I really love both pieces. I know the um not the the 
de- detriment a little cheap, but I remember when I mainly went through the uh, the feature synopsis and forty year old version sounded like an interesting uh, interesting mm-hmm. synopsis at the very least. Yeah. But, well, I guess let's backtrack for exposition. Let's get some uh, uh, into first act stuff done. What? Uh, where are you from? I'm from uh, just outside of Boston, Massachusetts. I'm actually from Concord, which is where uh, Little Women takes place. Okay. Just because that's in the air yeah. right now as well. Like I. Uh, we're, uh, we're gonna split this into right two right two right. timelines to go over go go back and forth. Yeah, yeah. Because on your website you have that uh, you alternate between L.A., Boston, and New York. Um, yeah, and, and that's about right. I I grew up in Boston and I grew up outside of Boston, and I went to Emerson in the city, and really liked it and thought about staying. But then when I went out to L.A. to visit some friends, I realized how many more jobs were out there, and so I decided to move there after I graduated. And I was there for about eight years and working in post, mostly indie films. And uh, I mean, I don't know how fast you want me to move through this. But no, will, not at all. Well, like, going, well, going backwards, I was yeah. like going like, what theaters did you go to as a kid? Oh, uh, in Boston? Sure. Or just, what, what uh, do you remember? Do you remember? My big question I ask everyone is, do you remember your first movie? Yeah. What was it? Well, my mother went into labor in a movie theater with me, uh, which is a what true was the story. Movie? Uh, it was Pennies from Heaven. Ooh, that's a uh, great movie for that to happen but, during. Yeah. Oh, not to miss, yeah. obviously. So there's she that. was the one person um, that saw *Pennies from Heaven* in a theater, or half of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And then what was funny is that that was Steve Martin and Goldie Hawn, right? I'm getting that right. No, it's um. um oh my God, I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. Um, she's the great Broadway dancer. Um, Bernadette yeah, Peters. Yeah. Bernadette Peters. It's, uh, it's yeah, a Herbert, oh yeah, 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 that's right. It's a Herbert Ross that's movie. Right, yeah. It's really. Yeah, and I don't remember what movie I first saw in the theater. But, yeah, I, I grew up right down the street, walking distance from the video store in my hometown. And so I don't really – I think not remembering is just more indicative of the fact that I was always there. So it was and continues to be always my outlet. What were the uh, movies uh, you rewound over and over or rewatching over and over? Oh, it would be like – well, the movies that still stick with me are like Ghostbusters from when I was really young and even some funny like you know like little disney movies and and the ralph bakshi lord of the rings version and and also like this movie wizards which he also did which is just like so that like from a pretty early on age i was always finding the weirder movies i could get my hands on that my parents would let me rent okay and then but these are mostly um, video store these are almost all video store did you go to theaters much yeah i did i mean there was a normal amc up the road at the mall uh but there was also a small indie theater in the next town over in lexington and there's a pretty decently sized landmark theaters in kendall square and coolidge corner in brookline and there's always like been little second run theaters all over the area the the theater the indie theater scene in boston is pretty strong it sounds so, like it that's yeah I'm, so i'm jealous super jealous do you remember the first movie that you figured out someone was making it i think well this isn't i can't say for certain but the first movie that comes to mind when i really like caught on to the craft of the story was uh pulp fiction because I was 13, I think, when I saw that in the theater. Okay. And my, I was actually just recounting this for my parents, with my parents the other day, where we were all kind of shocked that they agreed to let me go see that in the theater as a 13-year-old. But 
I was completely taken with it, and the structure of the film was the thing that really got me. Uh, that I think I always knew that there were filmmakers, and you know, I knew, you know, I'd seen other films, but I don't think I really. Of course, I'd seen a lot of films and knew a lot about a lot of great filmmakers. My mother had exposed me to a lot of great films, Humphrey Bogart and whatever else I was willing to sit in front of and watch. But I think when I saw Pulp Fiction, I really un- started to understand that there's like a real craft to it, okay. like a real structure that people come at it with a different approach. And I started to understand how you can, depending on the filmmaker, alter that approach. Did you, whenever you were go, finishing, or finishing high school and starting to go to college, were um, you planning on, were you going straight into editing? Was it just to be a filmmaker in general? Did you want to write and direct? Uh, I was interested in writing and directing. And I knew I really liked certain aspects of the process, editing being one of them. And I was always pretty good with computers, with the technical side of things. And I think Final Cut had just come out when I was graduating from high school. And I really sort of took to it. And I really enjoyed it. I liked every aspect of the filmmaking process. I liked writing it. I liked being on set. I liked directing actors. I loved editing. And then it wasn't until I got to college that I really realized that there were certain people that didn't like editing there were a lot of people that found it tedious and monotonous and i think as i was getting older and i was looking for a way to to eat when i was graduating from college okay i said well i kind of like this editing thing like let me spend some time in this and see see how it feels and pretty quickly i realized like you know what you know i actually when i got to la my first job was on a little indie film and i had a assistant director that i worked for that let's just say we didn't really get along. I don't think I really appreciated the onset experience. And so, so I was like, okay, well, I've got that experience. Like maybe it was just a bad thing, but let me go try out being a post PA for a while. And I sort of PA'd around and got put in different places and eventually landed at a trailer house in LA. And they got sort of stuck me in the machine room and I didn't know how long I was going to be there, but I ended up being there for about a year and a half and running the machine room. I still have and, nightmares uh, about my onset experiences. Yeah. Like they're just, I remember I yeah. had, I had some okay ones, but I just remember thinking like, um, they're mean. They were just mean mm. sometimes. Like mm. the, the funny thing, I remember yeah. I, I worked real briefly in a restaurant, uh, in the back of a restaurant. I remember thinking they were very similar just because like everything, mm. high intensity rush, a lot of hurry up and wait. And everyone was mean. Mm. So, First off, this your IMDb is bonkers. Like it is all like there's so much. <laughs> That's very nice to say. Yeah. So yeah, you, I have I've been to a lot of different projects. Is I guess what I would say. Yeah. So you were at the trailer house. Yeah, I was at the trailer house for a long time. It's called Buddha Jones. Still exists. Um, a lot of the people have moved on to other places, but uh, I mean, I really think that they still are the best people in the business, and it was good for me for a while. But I didn't really want to do that as an art form like it just didn't it didn't the work didn't appeal to me okay so i uh, had been lucky enough to meet a couple feature editor feature film editors and they started me on this path that now i try to send people on which is like well you meet someone and then they recommend you to somebody and then you talk to them and then you recommend somebody they recommend you to somebody else and you talk to them and you get lunches and you talk about your career and you talk about what you want and talk about how they did it. And then you start to get insights from that. And then eventually a job comes around. And so I started post PAing. my first 
feature film cutting room was a post PA on the kite runner. Okay. And, and, uh, from there I spent some time sort of at DreamWorks and spent a little time at Paramount and floated around doing a lot of post PA jobs. And then I found my way onto an indie tier one feature film. Well, this has been as an assistant editor or? Yeah, that was an, this is an assistant editor. When I left the trailer house, I had, so in LA, you may know this, but the, in LA, they have a union roster, which is basically you have to work a certain number of non-union hours. Yeah, yeah, That's I can tell. Roster, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I had, didn't realize until I was basically ready to leave the trailer house when I was actually actively thinking about leaving the trailer house that I had already accrued all the days that I needed to join the roster to get on the roster. So I was lucky. I think it was about 25 when I had already knocked that out without even really trying. And then, so I was on the roster. Then I just needed to basically make myself available and get start getting some feature experience and start my start building my network well uh, i but I, I, the, the fascinating thing to me is uh your your um even as you started doing some established features you're um more so than especially anybody else on the thread you're still doing assisting work do you like enjoy doing a unit work well it satisfies a certain part of my brain the same part of my brain that led me into editing in the first place. I think that there's a certain networking that comes from it. You meet a lot of really established directors. You meet a lot of really talented people. You spend a lot of time at some of the big facilities. You meet, you know, talented colorists. You meet talented sound mixers, like you suppose supervisors, whatever. And so it's a good way to build a network. Also, everything that I had done up until this year as an editor was a non-union project. And I've been in the union for 12 years now as an assistant. And that was how I was getting my health insurance and Well, I know most of the people on that it. thread t- are yeah. typically, they're they're keeping their, um, they're just in their hours for the, uh, their union hours in for that way. Yeah. And that's basically the way I was working it for a while. But I just started to get more selective about the projects I was working on. Okay. And, you know, now I'm sort of in the position where I, tr- I try to target the projects that I worked on. If I'm going to say yes to something, it's because I'm interested in being a part of it or I'm going to be. It's, it, it's, it's always like an interesting dance because we all have to eat. And even in a place like in New York, the, there still aren't a million opportunities. Like I'm not the first phone call for every indie feature so you have to find a way to to survive and and uh, you know and as you can probably attest sometimes the the money assisting on a giant disney movie is better than the money you would get from cutting a little indie well there's something i've i it, it, i get a little bit of it on indies but uh when i was with i've only really had that experience early on in my career weirdly enough but there's something about proximity like you're just like people are going to see this people have heard of the people that are in this movie if you tell someone what you're working on, even if you're just, even if you were just like a PA on it, people are more interested than the indie that you put a lot of heart into, and but they've never heard of any part of it. But so when did when did the uh, when exactly did the uh, LA to uh, it, you went to LA to Brooklyn? LA to Brooklyn, yeah. So in 2012, I moved to Brooklyn because my girlfriend at the time now wife got a job opportunity here and so I ch- uh, so I chased her here not really knowing what I would find when I got here but actually it turns out that the tax incentive that New York City had passed had just gone into place that previous summer and so there suddenly was this huge influx of small features trying to find talented assistants but 
because the talent base had not caught up with the tax incentive quite yet, there was a lot of opportunity for somebody like me who just was looking to find a job when I got here. And so, I mean, within a week of me being here, I got a job on Anthem Body Saints assisting for Craig McKay, which was great. And then that turned into additional editing credit when I was here. And then from there, like my name just kind of got passed around pretty quickly. And because the network is a lot smaller here, you meet everybody pretty quickly. I mean, there's maybe a half dozen actual big facilities in town. And so if you work at a handful of them, all of a sudden you've met <laughs> like a pretty wide swath of the people. I know um, um, my when I was just back in New York for Christmas, my friend kept telling me about these um, the various editors he's met at uh, parties generally. And, it's, and I, I, my mouth kind of did drop slightly occasionally, but when he told me this. So when, um, when did you make the leap to features, uh, the cutting your own feature? So... It started sort of by luck through meeting David Lowry and working on the Ain't Them Body Saints with Craig McKay because the David had cut the film with the previous editor and then started cutting the film himself in Final Cut 7 and Craig was being brought in to consult, but Craig can't use Final Cut 7. And so what they were looking for is an assistant to sit in the chair with Craig and David on the couch and be part of that process and so it was a much more involved collaboration than other kinds of assistant responsibilities and that pretty quickly turned into uh, additional editor credit because the editing continued after craig's involvement as well and so how long was he on it uh i don't remember exactly but let's say a month or two it's now lost my brain of exactly the chronology it's not lost in time but how long was it with you after he left then uh, well, it continued through the finishing process, and then after Sundance, we recut the film again before it went to Cannes, and then I think we recut it again after it actually got released. So it was just a constant collaboration, and then David and I being being in touch at least, but David is a great editor in his own right and doesn't need my help. And he was yeah, around the circles in Austin yeah. a lot. Like I had, um, uh, yeah. I had this cool story where a few years ago when I was uh, projecting for the uh, Austin Film Society... Um, I worked for Brian Poiser and uh, I ran, I, I would do uh, projector projections for dailies and stuff out there. And they wanted to run um, uh, shotgun stories and Jeff, uh, Jeff Nichols print of shotgun stories. And so it was, uh, cool. it was David Lowry, Brian Poiser and uh, Andrew Bujowski. And to pay me that we all went out to dinner afterwards. And he, <laughs> La- La- Lowry is just the nicest guy. He's a, such a sweet, nice guy. Oh, he's the best. He's the best. Yeah, he's been super supportive, and you know, I, I, he's definitely one of those people I would go to war for. Uh, I just think he's such a great talent, and also he just follows it up with great with great warmth, and and he's always been very, very giving and and uh, very friendly. I mean, I'm sure that's what makes him a good editor in addition to a great director. That makes sense. Yeah, I think he's, I think he's great. He was from getting to know him. I I was able to at least travel in a few circles like i talked to cat candler for a while and and you know do you know cats um, being around and... kind of I, I was i've met her a few times my friend uh, used to yeah. work uh, my friend scott colquitt used to work with her a lot but back old back, yeah. way back in the day though when she was still doing shorts and teaching or was this yeah that would have been it i mean it was after yeah. um yeah. what i forget what her first feature was but it was well after that hellion oh no no it was before hellion yeah. she did oh, a, before, she, she oh. had like two features that were uh, south by staples before then but um oh, cool. it would have he worked on hellion i do remember that because i've never seen that at south by yes 
So cool. we're at uh, Eighth and Body Saints. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you get additional credit on that. When was the um, first full editor credit? Well, I had actually had a full editor credit before that, but I that was a very small movie that hadn't made it very far out in the world, and it, my friend was the director, and so like I took the opportunity to work on it. So the post-supervisor on Ain't Them Body Saints really liked me and knew that I was capable of editing myself because I had spent some time with David doing it, and he had signed up to do this small feature here in New York that seemed like a great opportunity. It had Matthew Broderick, it had Janine Garofalo in it, it had Robert Forrester, and I was looking for any opportunity to cut that I could find. And so that brought me into the biggest feature film I had cut at the time through working on Saints. And so that film was really great. Uh, I, I love it to pieces. The director and the writer are still good friends and uh, premiered at the Woodstock Film Festival. What was Jenna, the name of the movie? Jenna, so the movie was called The American Side. And the just as a little side note, Jenna Ricker and Greg Sturr had gone on to make, uh, they just made a documentary that premiered at South by this year called Qualified, which is about the first woman to ever qualify for the Indy 500. Oh, okay. Uh, and okay. It's a, yeah, and it got picked up by ESPN's 30 for 30 and is a great, great documentary. And so just, just dropping that because I love them and love that film. But then the American side had a decent run, decent festival run. They actually crowdfunded a road show where Jenna and Greg drove around the country and did pop-up events at different theaters all around the country as a way to uh, raise awareness and uh, eventually got sold it to The Orchard and it ended up on Netflix. And so it got a little bit of visibility, but you know, it's hard, it's getting harder and harder for little indies to break through. So, uh, you know, I kept trying to find other opportunities and, uh, you know, I just, just, it's just lily pad to lily pad finding bigger projects to assist on. But then I also like found my way into through actually this is sort of, and this is the way everyone's career goes through working with Craig McKay. I had a producer who used to work with Jonathan Demi had worked with Craig McKay on Silence of the Lambs called Craig and said, I need, I have no money but I need a great editor in New York. Can you recommend somebody? And Craig recommended me this director, Laura Teruso, who had her first feature coming out. She was coming out of the NYU Tisch. And she had, through the process of of being there, had had met Michael Showalter. And the two of them had together written, Hello, My Name is Doris, together. And Michael's gone off and had an incredible career as a director himself. But Laura was still... It's still in grad school at the time when that movie premiered at South by Southwest. And so Jeez. Laura was about to go off and make her first feature. And they didn't have a ton of money, but they had Wyatt Cenac and Greta Lee and uh, Maria Dizia. And they had a great cast. And she is, she's an incredibly talented writer. And so took the time and put in the work. And um, that movie ended up premiering at South by Southwest in 2017, I believe. That is the first and, movie yeah. when I was going through your IMDb. I know that's the first movie I saw of yours. That's your, I was at the, I yeah. was at South by that year. Yeah. It's a, South by is an amazing festival. That's the only time I've ever been. I, I thought it, I just had an awesome time being there. I would love to go back. It's you know, I, it's just the one weird thing I was warned about South by versus Sundance distance. Cause I was, I was living in Austin. I go to Sundance every year. Uh, or I mean, right. South by every year, South by every year. Yeah. Um, right, very different festivals. Yeah, well, Sundays, I remember the funniest thing was that um, you get the badge, but then you still have to pay for tickets. 
And so you get first access to them, but you still have to pay for tickets. And I remember I, I was with some friends, and they were having me um, buy tickets. And like you know, I was I was poor, really poor at that point, and credit card was really <laughs> maxed. Yeah. So like it was just like, yeah. uh, guys, uh, could you guys give me a little bit of cash for this one? <laughs> I yeah, I think you know Sundance is an interesting festival. Not to sort of trail too much off the uh, off the thread, but you know. When you're at Sundance, you are trapped in this little town during the festival. And so it's, you know, I, I enjoy it in some way, but it becomes this very sort of melting pot where you, even if you're not in it, you can, you're in it. And South by being in the middle of a city where you also have almost three festivals happening at once, right? You have the right. film festival, but then you also have the music festival, and then you have the interactive, like digital side of the festival, all of which going on their own things. You know, you have lots of people there to do things and be a part of a festival that has nothing to do and they have no awareness of your corner of the festival either. And that made it really fun to have a badge to be able to go to see interesting talks like my uh, my girlfriend, now wife, you know, she works in digital branding. And so we got to go see a lot of interesting talks that she was interested in. And we got to go see some interesting bands. I saw Lizzo play when nobody knew who Lizzo was. Lizzo played you know, that year? Now, yeah, Lizzo played at NP, I mean, the NPR stage at, at, My, at like, block, and it was like, I, I was like, that was the best that act is, I've ever seen. Wow. It was crazy. Well, yeah. the thing is, yeah. like, my first few years, I uh, gave up on music. Like, I, um, when I first <laughs> got to Austin, I got, I got a platinum badge just for giving, like, 20 hours of volunteer work. And my oh, cool. yeah, well, they did that for two years, and then or one, the first or second year, and then the third year, they suddenly didn't do it after I'd already done the work. And even then, I was just like, you know what? F- film is nourishing enough here. There is so much FOMO with um, all in Austin in general, much less during South by. You miss like, did you yeah. stay up till six a.m. to watch the Kanye show? And it's like, no. And <laughs> you, it, after having waited in line for ten hours, I'm like, no, I'm good. I, I saw like four good movies, you know. No, the other, the other distinct, uh, the only similarities I know between the two is the satellite venues. The satellite venues, I remember I got to the point my year at Sundance, uh, I got to see um, Manchester by the Sea, but only because I drove in, yeah. I had a car and drove into Salt Lake City. And especially later in the week, they, that's the uh, best way to see some of the movies. I want to rewind back just a little bit. Early up on your IMDb is a few Everything is a Remix videos. Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember particularly the Kill yeah. Bill one. Yeah, that's cool. Thank you for for mentioning that. That's I mean, there's a lot of really cool things about this project. Kirby Ferguson is a really really smart guy, and I, you know, think the world of him. And he's still out there making a, another web series right now called "This Is Not a Conspiracy Theory." And but it was really funny is this was at the time where Twitter was more innocent, and I was just sitting on Twitter one day, staring at the feed going by, and you know, I was following Kirby calling you know the everything is a remix twitter handle and goes by it just says do i know any editors out there and i thought that the first episode was so good that i just like immediately messaged him and was like yes within like 10 seconds of the post going up i was like yes i'm here like here's a hundred things here's whatever i had cut at the time like i will do whatever you want and he's like well i have no money but i have all these examples of tarantino's influences for kill bill like would you be interested in collaborating with me on this project? And I was like, a hundred percent. Like it was just sort of like a fun thing to do. He was like, I don't even know what you're going to come up with, but here's all this footage. And he let me just kind of poke around and experiment. And I would send him a few cuts and then he was like, okay, great. And then we put it on the internet and 
it's still to this day I feel like one of the most watched things I've ever done. But of course, as you can, as you know, it's like I, I didn't get paid a dime for it. Yeah, I came to it late, is, so like I, I don't yeah. think I watched it when it first came out at all. Those are really fun projects, and I still am in touch with Kirby, and I, I think he's a great guy. Yeah. Um, I did. I had one specific technical question. Uh, you had an additional yeah. credit on uh, Mr. Robot. Oh yeah. So this is part of the bouncing back and forth thing that you were talking about earlier. So I had watched the first season of Mr. Robot, and still think it's brilliant. And I, I think Mr. Robot, just in general, considering that it just wrapped up, like I've watched every episode at least once. Like I think it's just a great show, and I think Sam Esmail is really. Like, he's another guy I would definitely, definitely go to war for. Uh, but Mr. Robot is going to war, literally. Uh, it's like going to war. And, well, sort of what happened is one of the editors on the first season was good friends with a lot of people I knew, former New Yorkers, then moved to L.A., and they talked to me a lot when I was moving from L.A. to New York, and, and we all stayed in touch. And then when Philip Harrison asked them, like, do you know any good New York assistants? He just happened to get my name and number and called me up. And I had watched the first season of Mr. Robot myself, and I was like, this show is brilliant. And then when my wife my wife was out of town, and then when she got back, I made her binge it, and I rewatched the, rewatched the first season again, and I was like, this show is brilliant. And then it just happened to get a phone call to work to, to be an assistant on the show. Um, and so I knew when I was getting into it that, you know, I was going to be working on the first episode and the last episode, and I was going to be working with this guy who had worked with Sam a lot, who had cut Sam's first feature, and, like, I knew there's going to be a lot of opportunity there, but pretty quickly I realized that we were about to drown because it was Sam's first foray into directing the entire season. Okay, this is season two? This is season two, so, yeah, yeah so let me... No. Yeah, so they, they cut the first season in L.A., and then Sam decided he wanted to direct the whole season. And so they brought the editors and the post producer out from LA. And so that they knew that people that Sam had worked with and Sam had approved would be there. But they hired a local crew for the supervisor, coordinator, PA, assistant editors, and stuff like that. So I got signed up to do it. My good friend James Lesage, who was also an editor here in town, and my friend Gordon Holmes, all got the all ended up working on the show together so it was a great assistant crew uh but because of they, they had allowed sam to direct all the episodes block shot the whole season but then they did not really move the air dates they didn't consider that that still isn't enough time that you still only have one guy to be on set the whole time and then like when is he going to sit in the editing room for days and and sam really likes to take his time. He's really meticulous. He really makes season of television like a feature film. And they didn't give us enough time the first go around. And so it was nights and weekends. We were on a shifted schedule Monday to, uh, sorry, Wednesday to Sunday because Sam, the only days we could guarantee that Sam would be available to come into the cutting room was Saturday and Sunday. And so we were, we were definitely there Saturday and Sunday. Uh, but then that also ended up, we were being there, on, we were there on Monday and Tuesday to catch up on everything. So for a while we were just doing around the clock stuff and Sam shot so much for the first episode, they split it into two episodes. And then when the finale came around too, they split it into two episodes. So I ended up being credited on six different episodes of a 12 episode season. And that led to me being able to cut a lot because while they were cutting 
episode one, I mean, episode four is not going to wait. Well, so, what, uh, dates have moved, so, I should yeah. mention that I, I think it's second season, maybe third season, but I think it's second season. I know I deliberately was like studying it and ripping stuff off of it. Like, and just because it's so, like you mentioned, meticulously cut, I always have this thing with TV, like, like, especially when t- TV starts to get, you know, peak TV and it starts looking like a feature, like I'm always amazed, like how, how much time did you have on that? I mean, I mean, you're working nights and weekends, you're working overtime. Yeah. We let's see if I can remember how much time. I think we started around February or March, and the show started airing pretty quickly in July. But uh, and then, you know, I think that the we were working right up until air, until our air dates. So I think we were airing like July through late August uh, or early September. I think is what it ended up being. And we were there like we were delivering. Like if the show was airing on Wednesday, we were delivering on Monday, hopefully sometimes into Tuesday. So it was right down to the wire. So it got to the point where we would get a day off on Sunday before our air dates because we knew Sam wouldn't be there because he would be at the mix. (laughs) So that's kind of how it was. Well, and it's Um, it's a testament because the shows don't seem sloppy at all. There doesn't seem like a lot of... uh... Uh, I don't know. Maybe uh, maybe you guys recut some stuff after air or something. But but uh, yeah, yeah, we were all very meticulous and 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 not to just just because I know the guys like Philip Franklin and John, the editors on that season, were all incredibly talented editors. But it's also because we had James Gordon and myself, who are also all, you know, they were all sort of we're, we all are, we are all sort of in the same place here in New York where we're cutting indie features on the side, you know, assisting when we can, you know, we're all sort of doing the same sort of balancing act. And we just were there because we love the project, love the, love Mr. Robot. And I would say that if, if there's any secret to it, it's that they really had six editors, you know, Fair not enough. in title, but in, in, in ability. And we got to do a lot of really fun things on that season. Like that was the ALF 90s sitcom flashback okay, episode. I remember that episode. And, I remember that one. Yeah. And they shot it all on they shot it all on beta and green screen and so Gordon pulling keys had madness and then they also like they had the VHS tape the old VHS tape which is where he was supposed to get the mask inspiration from uh, and they what they did is they went out and shot it and then James who you know was one of the other additional editor assistant editors on that season cut the whole show and, uh, and then took it and dubbed it to his VHS tape and re-digitized it as a ProRes master and the, from his VHS and that's the version that went to air. That is um, so cool. Yeah. So we had a lot of we had a lot of fun on that season and and look the the Sam is they went back to LA after season two they realized they pushed back the air dates they reinvented their entire entire approach to post that meant that it wasn't necessary for us to be involved and unless we were going to move to LA which none of us were in a position to do like they went and you know brought in a new post team and they are also incredibly talented uh rose tancolella was just nominated for an eddie for her work on the fourth season but they are i mean it's one of those shows that i i I'm, just to have worked on one season of i'm super proud of it i i love that show okay yeah. I, I was gonna tell you specifically there was the um the weird digitizing effect i remember i was doing a lot of like two frame putting in sound and messing around with sound like trying to treat it like a pixie song like where you just like constantly yeah. jarring people but very <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, I've had this conversation with a lot of other editors, and it seems there's a wide gulf on this, but it sounds like you've 
I, I first started out working with a lot of editors. Like we would recut each other a lot. And um, mm. I've had a lot of conversations. That's Terrence Malick, right? Yeah. And I've talked to yeah. a lot of other editors who are so, and I've done it this way many times, but just work by themselves and can't imagine working with others. But it sounds like, are you in the, uh, the former camp a little more where, you know, coming up as a assistant being properly mentored? Properly, I was just say like properly mentored is like in, I'm putting it in <laughs> okay. They, uh, I, you know, I spent a lot of time also working recut jobs and stuff like that when I would work as an assistant, and and I've still been around and I still had my work recut and I still recut other people's work and I, you know, I do think our work is important and I think our work is sacred, but I do think that there is a value sometimes to having a fresh set of eyes on the project and I know that even for myself sometimes I can get blind to what is it isn't working about a cut and so I am I've maybe sit somewhere in the middle where I don't you know Terrence Malick to use the sort of extreme example as I've never been a part of any of his projects but from what I understand famously he recuts things and recuts things and puts it out in the world and recuts it again and that I have no idea what that environment is like. And to some degree, I think that there is a law of diminishing returns where, you know, I do think it's a truism that a film is never done. It's just abandoned, right? That sometimes you need to just put it aside and move on. So I don't necessarily mean to endorse that, although I can't speak to that. Only you can speak to that. But the, but I, but I do think the idea of the editor as singular vision is not something I subscribe to either. I think that there's value sometimes in someone coming in and taking a look at your footage. I think, and this is no disrespect to any director I've ever worked with, but I think sometimes there's value as well for the director to come in and hear a third person who they have deemed accountable to the creative process, let them come in and see if they have the same observations. I know I have been a part of projects where editors have stepped in after the fact and looked at something and gave a note that I gave three months prior, the director didn't yeah, want to accept. That, that's always but the frustrating get, one, yeah. They're a little bit more like, all right, maybe this time. And so I've actually won some battles with other editors making arguments for me. So I, I think oh, that there totally. is value to it. I think there's value to it, but just like there's value through any part of you can get that reward through any means. You can be the person with your hands on the machine, but like, you know, you might get that note seven times in the screening, or you might get that note by just bringing in a really established editor who will make the observation for you and then you go off and do it. You don't have to give the film to somebody else to to accomplish that. But I think that it's a collaborative medium and, but politics plays a role. Right. Like it's, you know, it. I say that it's, you know, 50% technical and 50% therapy. And so sometimes that was, that was a hard lesson for me early on. Like I remember one editor just like flat out saying it was psychotherapy. And I just, uh, it took me a second to be like, I just, I I'm here to make a good movie. Like I just, it it really, but um, I mean, there's, there's also, I know sometimes in the atmosphere where there's a bunch of editors, you get, um, there's this danger of getting over overly protective of your work, the inherently finding value in your work and less than other people, anybody else's as a, also as an extension of your ideas. Um, yeah. I know on one movie um, in particular, I got to a point where um, the bunker whole, the, the bunker mentality takes over in some, in some um, editing rooms. And um, I, 
we just started showing it to people because I was just like, look, I got to admit, this is how I feel about it. This is how you feel about it. We need an arbiter on this. And we, and, yeah. and, and actually, actually I've done that in multiple movies and that, um, it was a helpful, it's been the, st- the way I've been doing movies whenever we have plenty of time on something. I just screen and screen and screen yeah. every week working, we're in progress. I totally agree. Do you want to talk about, uh, your nonfiction work, any of the nonfiction editing stuff? You mean like some of my commercial work or, or stuff like that? How do you mean? Um, when you say nonfiction, I just the I thought or it's a few docs. I know I, I noted uh, most beautiful island because I, I remember trying to see that South by oh. not being able to see that. No, that's a, that's a that's a narrative thing. Okay. Um, oh. Yeah. No, it's I I mean, I spent a little time in doc. Uh, I would love to spend more, but I, I I think it's the best place for an editor to sort of like stretch their legs and and work the muscles because the editor really is the writer of the project. As you, you know, but I like on a dock more so than on anything else. But I, I haven't spent enough time there, and I really, you know, I hope I can. I mean, uh, there's a project coming up in February that I'm hoping to be involved in uh, as an editor, which, uh, but I'm, you know, it's it, life is still sorting itself out in February. Like I said, I've been on my honeymoon, and now I'm going to Sundance, and I've barely had time to think about what I'm going to do next. Yeah. So. I'm, That's just how it is. Lily pad to lily pad. Well, I'm kind of surprised our circles haven't overlapped more, but I think a lot of it's like when you compare uh, nonfiction stuff, uh, the, some of the, the old Malik people went to New York. A lot of them are in New York right now, and a lot of them are working in yeah. nonfiction because a lot of the way the uh, editing of the Malik movies worked is very similar to docs as opposed to scripted um, scripted. Do you know movies. Keith's phrase? That's my friend I've been mentioning multiple times, actually. He's the one yeah, I, yeah, I just yeah, work yeah. with in New York. Yeah. Keith and I met, so uh, speaking of uh, being an assistant, uh, Keith came in to work on this project that I don't think has come out yet, but it was called uh, The Night Three Opened or Once Upon a Time in Staten Island. I can't remember what the current I, title I is. I'm familiar with it. Right yeah. And, uh, and the at Bloom the time... The Bloomhouse movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was looking for assistant work at the time because I, my other projects had wrapped up and Goldie had wrapped up and I was looking for union hours and I was looking for a steady paycheck and this movie called and called on Friday and said, can you start on Tuesday? And I said, sure. And they hadn't hired an editor yet. So I didn't know anything about it. And, but you know, I just started on that and within a a week or two of starting in Keith got hired and he and I hit it off and yeah, so he, I'm, He's one of those guys that's you know just a lot of doc and narrative stuff. Yeah, right? I think he mentioned you, and he mentioned you favorably. Yeah, uh, he he referenced you, I think, at one point when I was in New York. That's just because I slipped him a hundred dollars. Um, well but he's uh, he's a great guy and and uh, he's going to be a future uh, guest on the eventually too. Yeah. No, he's he's super talented, and I, I he also has given me since we met like a lot of really great counsel about you know finding an agent navigating in new york this sort of delicate balancing act of when you're trying to just find your sea legs as an editor which is you know for me because i like i would love to never go back to assisting if that were really feasible but i think i'm who knows what's going to happen with any of the projects going into sundance you know 40 year old version is not sold yet no one has seen it you know like i have been to festivals before where you want the movie to explode out of the festival and shoot off like a rocket, but yeah. you realize pretty quickly that it that just isn't how it works. Like, you know, I I think I'm actually approaching Sundance right now with a decent amount of uh, humility about the 
process where what I'm hoping for is for it to shoot out of the festival like a rocket. But what I'm just trying to do is just go there and enjoy it. That's, that's because I think smart. if you, that's very smart. Yeah, it's like, because there's no cash prize at the end, you know, the reward is just sort of the accolades and, and having people enjoy it. And, and like, I just, I realized pretty quickly that it like, you can get to the point where we are, where you, you ha you may have an agent, you may have cut some movies that have played in some big festivals. You may think you really are an editor, but you realize pretty quickly that the switch does not just flip like it it's sort of uh it builds over time that's and, very well said eventually you know if, if eventually you you find your name in certain circles and you just you know sort of you float to the surface but it doesn't just happen overnight and it requires time and it requires people seeing your work and you know honestly fits and starts premiered at south by but it wasn't because it was on south by that it got any attention. It was because it was free on Amazon Prime. And I know a lot of people that watched it on Amazon Prime because they were just like, oh, I don't know, whatever this movie is, click. And then they watched it and they were like, that movie is great. And then they would message me afterwards like, I didn't even realize you cut it, but it was great, you know. I've, uh, I've had some and, cool moments where someone came up to me after it went on screen, streaming and I uh, one movie I did on streaming and I was just like, I thought no one saw it. I thought no one saw that movie. That was so cool. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things. So you said you're starting to get a little more choosy right now. If if the if the prospects are there, what's what? I don't know. My friend made me watch the SAG Awards last night, and Brad Pitt at one point yeah. said when he won something along the lines that you can never tell when something's going to be good. Do you have any metric or what you're looking for whenever somebody comes up with it? I think there's this weird <laughs> problem where sometimes you like a script. It's hard to explain to people because especially we've been weaned on this like um, EPK stuff of like a script's got to be good. It's hard to explain to people scripts are so abstract. You cannot tell if they're good. Sometimes you feel strongly about it and that's going to make me good. But there are bad scripts that turn into good movies that you just didn't get. They weren't objectively bad. And then yeah. you find yourself like going to what uh, if, if someone a recognizable name's going to be on it and the careerist and he's thinking. Maybe that's going to lead to a more a, a, a boulder rolling down a hill, and I'll get more jobs from that. But yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. I I think it's a you know everyone's got to eat. So I I do, you know, I have worked on things where let's just say like I I did spend some time working on the Nutcracker and the Four Realms, which is this little uh, which is little. It's a giant Disney movie, but. You know, I knew that I was going to be like the eighth assistant when I worked on it, and they had very specific tasks that they needed me to accomplish, and it was a little bit of a button pusher role, but I still was willing to take it because, like, it was decent money, and and I liked all the people that were working on it, my friends were working on it, and I, like, was just happy to to be there. So I I wouldn't say that I exclusively follow this, but then but if I know that I'm going to put my name on something, that if it's going to end up on my IMDb profile, then I try to just say if there's not a cut of it already. I, I do try and make the sort of careerist assessment of the project and be like, will it be seen? What is the built-in audience for this project? Okay. Be it a festival or be it, you know, this person has already broken out of the festival. So like uh, take, for example, like The Lighthouse, which which I just was a visual effects editor I, on. I was going to ask you about the Like, yeah. So that like it came to me because one of the people who um, I had just worked with on Goldie, the feature I cut prior to 40-year-old version he was also working on the lighthouse and you know, I'd seen the witch. 
I knew Rob's reputation was stellar. And because I had worked with um, Jeff Penman, the producer on, on the lighthouse before I knew he was a great guy and he wouldn't be calling me if he didn't, you know, need me. Right. So like, I felt like that was a good project to be associated with because like, even if it's not great, it's a 24, it's got a ton of indie cred. Like, we'll see how it goes. We'll see what leads to it. And like, the more time I spend just traveling through different editing rooms, the more I realized that like, it really is your network in some way. And so I figured like, I'm going to work with somebody who I, I'm going to work with this producer that I like. I'm going to meet a cool director who's a young guy who I like. I'm going to like, like socially, I'm going to work with, a you know, work at Harbor Picture Company, which is a great finishing house here in town. And I knew I was going to have a good time. But the thing you hope for is like, you know, I just try to say like, is it going to be a good experience? Like that's, that is really the thing that I try and decide on more than anything is like, am I going to like it? Right. Am I going to get it? Am I going to get through it? Like whatever my role is, big, small, medium, like is the, are the people around me going to respect me? Are they going to be valuable? Like, am I going to want to be there? Am I going to want to get up and do the work? And do you have any like ways of measuring if uh, yeah. if the crew or the director is going to be cool to work with? I mean, we we we, we all look um, for, uh, like red flags yeah. all the time. It feels like, or I do. Yeah, no, I think I I think I just it, it's impossible to know until you get there. But I just try to make the best guess with judging my needs against the values of the project. And and believe me when I say like I've guessed wrong both ways. Like yeah. I've looked at something and said I don't want to be a part of that that's too small a role. I'm, you know, I, I won't say what, but last year there was a indie feature that they needed an assistant editor for that the director was going to cut it. And they said, we just need someone to come in and sync dailies. It's going to be pretty simple. No one's going to be looking over your shoulder. The money was fine. And I was like, honestly, but Goldie, uh, the last feature I cut had just premiered at Berlin. And I was saying to myself, like, I'm not doing this anymore. Right. Right. But I was saying, like, well, maybe, like, I could turn this into, like, a co-editing thing or something like that. But I don't know. But I was just like, I'm not interested in trying this. And, like, there wasn't enough good stuff about it. And even though I thought the movie might be halfway decent, I didn't. I just kind of blew it off. And then the movie is, let's just say it's completed a very successful festival run and is headed off into, like, a nice theatrical release. And if... I think maybe you're, that you're gonna have to yeah. tell me the movie after I, I, I yeah we'll talk we can talk about it we can talk about it afterwards but then I've also signed up to to be a part of things thinking everything looks great and then I get there and I'm just like this is a painful hmm. like like nobody values my presence I'm not it's not worth me sticking around and like I'm bored like hopefully in that case you're at least being paid well <laughs> well the, yeah, it's yeah. always the balance. No, the the but I I always use the freelancer three things. I think it was uh, Neil Gaiman first said it, but it was I heard it from him. But it was uh, you can get it good, you can get it fast, you can get it cheap, and you get two of the three. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I say it's uh, people. Is it people? There's like people pay in project. It's like you want you want oh, two. That's sort right. of the from the two or three thing. It's, like, it's like two out of three. It's like you you like the people you work with, and you're gonna get paid well, but the movie is shit. Okay. Or the movie is great and the people are great, but the money is shit. You know what I mean? Like it can go, you know, right. it's always kind of something, something like that. Was. Or the people suck and you get paid really well and the, you know the movie is going to find a life. So you just kind of, you always have to figure out, you have to balance your needs with, um, you know, what you think you're, what you think you want to be working on. I, know? I should, um, 
I have one last question just because I can't let you go without asking about um, I love Maria de July a lot. Uh, I want to know what your experience was like working with her. Oh, I think it, Miranda is the sweetest. I was so privileged. It was it was pretty early in my career when I was working with her, and it was like I'd seen me and you and everyone we know, and I loved it. And just got we were working to be on in Criterion my, too. Yeah, yeah. And we were working in my neighborhood in Silver Lake, where I was living at the time, and working on the future. I thought was just great, but th- it was still like a weird situation because they didn't have enough money for an avid for the assistant the whole time. So I was doing night shifts while the editor was cutting with Miranda during the day. And I was coming in and doing like outputs and stuff like that until like midnight. And so, you know, it always started, this is like little indie tier. It was a tier zero, I believe, which is like, you know, I was not making a lot of money, but I was at least getting union benefits for it. And, um, actually funny, funny story. This is sort of, I found my way onto that project because my neighbor was the post supervisor. I didn't even know that at the time. Like, I just was like this woman who I was uh, talking with, who is a very successful post supervisor producer in LA now. Like at the time she was just sort of starting out. She was just this nice woman that I would like talk to um, down the street. And she's like, hey, like you're an editor and an assistant, right? And I was like, yeah. It's like, do you want to work on this Miranda July movie? And I was like, what? Like, <laughs> so I did get an opportunity to spend some time with Miranda. I got to spend some time with John Bryan, which was really cool. That sounds cool. Because he, because, because he was working the same schedule as I was because he seemed to like, he would get up mid afternoon and work till like the sunrise. You know, if I, if I would have a turnover and then I would go and drop it off at his studio in I think Burbank or something like that at like eight or nine o'clock at night and they'd all be awake and like Miranda would be there and everybody would be like hanging around because John is like a, is nocturnal. So uh, it was really super rad. And um, I saw him at the Largo a few years ago doing the most amazing, it was like a 20 or 30 minute show where it started out. He had a, um, a repeat pedal or something, but he just did every instrument and the piece just builds and then dropped down. And it was one of the coolest things I've seen live. Yeah. The John Bryan Largo shows are legendary. And like my wife and I, you know, when we were in LA, like we'd go to shows, she grew up there. So she grew up going to see like Kanye and Fiona Apple and seeing John Bryan perform like at the sort of height of it before he even moved over to the coronet where he performs now the, the old Largo but okay so because I was working on the Miranda thing that the editor at the time who finished the movie who is also a good editor uh, Madeline Gavin she just cut loose okay. and like you know it's like a really successful New York editor she had to go back to New York and Madeline wanted to take the scene that they had sort of like cast aside during the process of making the film and turn it into like a little short film and so Miranda called me and said, like, will you will you cut the scene with this sort of approach? She had to sort of like imagine it as this little like short film called The Handy Guide for the Easily Distracted, which is this little like into this little instructional thing for her process as a creative. And it's just a joke. It's a very Miranda scene. You know? I, I just like, watched involves... it like about a half hour before recording this. It's funny. Yeah, it's, it's, so it's 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 so, it's so funny. It's so Miranda. And like so she came over and sat like like I didn't have anything, but I had a little setup at a little TV and my laptop and she came over and like sat on my bed and we'd like, like cut the thing. And I was just sitting here, I was sitting there with Miranda, like sitting on the bed in my bedroom while we were editing this thing being like, I got to get an office or something. <laughs> 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 I can't, 
I can't do this. Like you look like you have like a very nice setup from our Skype call. And at the time I was just so like in my own head about my setup. And so now you can't quite see it. I'd have to turn the camera around for you to be able to see it. But now I have like a, you know, a couch and a TV and oh. more of a more of a setup because I'm just like I can't bring people over. I had to. And, like, I had to move to the Midwest to do uh, this setup here. Yeah. So tell me about tell me about your setup. Like so when you so you you left Austin, right? Yeah. Basically, after the. Um, I don't know. I, I think what you're talking about earlier about the uh, light switching, I, I think I expected that. And um, I, I, I had like three features do, did in LA, um, Austin, LA, and I got massive burnout. And um, yeah. so um, a friend was offering me um, a reality TV gig and it was better pay than I'd made. I, I, st- I still really don't make much money on it, but um, it was better pay than I ever had. And it was long and it was really, mm-hmm. ano- it was anonymous. I got to ha- use a pseudonym. And so um, yeah. I, I did that for like about two or three years and that, that's, and yeah. um, I probably would have kept going, but it looked like that wasn't going to continue on. So then I was just like, keep my cost of living and just go back to working in New York and LA. And um, I worked for the first time last month uh, back on a feature, it was with Keith, and I was just helping mm-hmm. him out. He, they just, they mm-hmm. had, a, they had a crazy schedule, and he needed just an extra set of hands. And um, I'm still informally helping them out, and I really mm-hmm. felt like it's just a muscle I haven't used in a while, and I just started missing it. So I'm um, kind of thinking about uh, trying to dip my toe back in, but it's not. It's weird, just because it's not like I. The only way I turned down movies was when I was working consistently there. Like it wasn't like I don't. I don't really turn down movies and like I got a few calls after yeah. the Sundance movie, but, um, and I had one movie I really wanted, but for the most part, the movies I was getting offered, I was like, I didn't get it. Okay. And it wasn't, yeah. so I, yeah, I just don't know where I'm at right now. Um, I, would, yeah. I mean, everyone, well, was, well do you, what do you think? How are you finding being in the Midwest as like a place to find opportunities or what, it, what is it like? Or like, tell me about the quality of life things. Because like, I'll tell you, I live in a shoebox in New York, so I'm a little jealous. You know? Well, I, it took me a long time to um, come to the conclusion where to stay. Cause Austin's not that expensive. I could, I could have stayed there if I thought I could have kept working there, but I kept trying to find the place where it would make more sense to go. And so, well, my family's here. I'm from the, so like they'll be here. Yeah forever so that that made the sense and i was really getting desperate to buy i didn't i was, I was getting yeah. sick of renting and wanted extra room so that was that was pretty much the logic there i do every once in a while get paranoid that like because uh if i'm not in a big city going out like grabbing drinks with somebody that i'm not consciously on someone's radar but at the same time it also led to doing this just because i can randomly still talk to people and uh feel vaguely connected even if only by a skype connection yeah and i think that the world is getting smaller and smaller and like i the more i talk to people about what is it look what is editing gonna look like in 10 years i think that it's very easy to believe that we will be able to maybe not you know i don't know about move where everybody can move to the midwest but like you might get to the place where like people are moving farther out of town People are spending more time working remotely. Like I, I do think the sort of like culture around being in a chair at a desk. Well, had you like, ever worked where... remotely? So I mean, it, it's always it always comes and goes because like especially now like everything, it's have gun will travel. Like you can go anywhere you want and still do work. So mm-hmm. even if I 
like have a place to work, I can still go home at night and keep working or I can be on vacation or I have to be somewhere and I'm like, you know, we'll do this thing or the, or the director themselves like has to travel for two weeks. They've got to go to LA and I keep working and then I send them cuts. Like that's still kind of working remotely unless you're sitting in the room with the director. It is sort of, I guess by definition working in the work, working remotely. And I'm all, I'm sort of in this funny place where like, I feel like there's value to being near New York, but like, do I need to be like a 20 minute subway ride from the cutting room? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, uh, am I giving up the opportunity to like have a life outside of the city with trees and air and the, hikes and less traffic? The big paranoid feelings I have are more about getting jobs. Cause the, the thing that yeah. also this trip back to New York was really uh, illustrative about and very helpful was I really am getting the best of both worlds. Like I got to hang out in New York for just a few weeks and I it just felt like I was living in New York for a while. I was, I was in Manhattan for most of the time. I was in Red Hook for the other nice. half of the time. But at the same time, I know what my time off is like and how long my time off can be. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I couldn't afford yeah. my time off in New York. I can come back to the Midwest and the cost of living is so low. And I can fill my yeah. time doing my own stuff or hanging around with my family, too. I have a friend. Uh, she's a very good friend of mine who is uh, a trailer editor. Her name is Haley Thompson. She has worked for a long time at a lot of different facilities here and in LA, here in New York and in LA. And she went back, spent some time near Aspen where she grew up and met a guy, got married. They bought a house in like way out in Eastern Oregon. Like that, that's where they, that's where she lives. But the, her mortgage payments are so low. And like he has a, he has a job. I think he is a professor at the local university. So they have like a very stable life out there. Uh, but she was always a really talented trailer editor. And so she is either able to be subcontracted out by facilities where they will just like send her a hard drive and she does all her work remotely and uploads cuts from her house where she pays, you know, nothing to live. Or she flies, like right now she's in LA working at uh, some, uh, one of the big guys, I don't remember which one, but one of the big trailer companies. Uh, uh, and she'll go out there for two months and make like six months worth of living expenses. That's, that's exactly and then she can where go I'm back at right and now. Like, yeah, yeah. So, so it's really, it's a quality of life thing. I mean, I, I think that, you know, to some degree working in narrative, you have to be in the room, the political side of things, you need to kind of be there. But I do think we're getting to a point now where just talking like we're talking is, is most of the way there where you are. Well, what changed know, things for me was uh, I did um, I did a few film films remotely. I, I had worked two movies that were um, made out of uh, Mobile, Alabama, of all places. And the second one, Ooh. they they flew they they put me out the first time. And the second time, they thought they were going to save money, and so I cut the assembly at home. And ever since then, mm-hmm. I, I've had a lot of weird experiences where I've done this. I remember one of the movies I did uh, before this last New York trip. Um, they br- my friend uh, I edited a movie for my friend he brought me out to New York and then I showed him the system of how to share Avid uh, a, a project with each other as long as we had our cloned hard drives and yeah. he, he would edit from his apartment I'd edit for the place he set me up and then he went back we moved to LA but he went there almost like a month before I did and so we yeah. we remote cut that way for like a long yeah. time and you're the biggest thing I found I'm worried about is um it's that um, pulling off the band-aid of getting to know a director and then show your first cut. 
that's always the thing. You, you yeah. like you need to know what they like, yeah, and, you know what they don't like, and getting to know them and stuff like that. That's the biggest part of it. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I mean, it's 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 yeah, it's an ongoing project still. Yeah, and I think like going to you know, and the other things too. It's like getting breakfast in the morning, getting lunch, talking to them while you're taking a break, like the the developing a rapport is really best done in person yeah and and there's a lot of things that get lost in translation when you're trying to be judicious with your communication like over email or text or even over like a skype call like this so i i do think that there's value to being there but does that mean that you always need to be there especially during an assembly like i i could have done that i I was I had a great assistant editor on the 40 year old version, Sam Salvadon. And Sam, if Sam hadn't been in the room right next to me, where we could bounce ideas off each other and bop through, you know, talk about workflow and talk about like how the cut was going, and I could show him things to get his immediate reaction, like that, I wouldn't want to replace that. But does that mean it has to be in New York? Like not necessarily. Yeah. But I think life will point me in the path. But right now, like I, I love my neighborhood, and I'm not trying to leave Brooklyn. I, I love it here, but. Mm. I, as but it you sounds know, like this really, question is really hit, uh, weighing on you right now, or it's something to yeah, think about. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just something it's just something to think about, it. and I'm really curious about people's experiences living in other places other than New York and LA. People from LA are like, "How do you even find work in New York?" And I was like, "It's actually pretty easy. Not, it's not easy. I don't want to oversell right, it, but right. it's like you know, it's a small like I was saying, like it's a small network, and so if you meet a few people, the odds that you're going to hear about something, be it a cutting job, assistant job, whatever, are a lot greater because it's not like in LA where there's just a sea of people here. It's like, there's a, I say it's like depth versus breadth as there's a quality of project that happens here. Like there will be a $2 million, $200 million Disney movies. Like in the Heights is here right now. Right. Okay. And my friends are working on it. So in the, and that's going to be a huge movie when it comes out, but there's only like one in the Heights. Right. Versus LA where all the other examples of that are being made West side story and whatever. That's all in LA, but so you can work on a Disney movie, you can work on a giant movie, but like if you don't get the job on that giant movie, there's not a ton of other giant movies to go around. Okay. That's sort of what I'm saying. You should come to New York, and you and Keith and I will go get a beer. Oh, absolutely, yeah. No, I um, I, back to what you were saying earlier about uh, just being in the other room. It was so much fun working with him again. I hadn't worked with him in years, but um, lastly, speaking yeah. of um, life changes and uh, rethinking things, uh, how was your honeymoon? And congratulations, getting married. Oh. Thank you very much. It was amazing. I, uh, at the risk of boring people, uh, I we went to Tanzania to go on a safari and then so go to boring. visit Zanzibar. So boring. Yeah. And, well, I just mean, you know, it is unlike anything else I've ever seen in my life. I've never been to Africa. I've, I, I have no experience with anything about what I, what I went through. What You know, I didn't know anything about the people. I didn't know anything about the country. I didn't know anything about the, the topography and the way the animals interact. But it was like, it's just kind of amazing to draw. Like there's, I'll, I'll just sort of like tell one story. So there is a, there is a um, conservation site. It's not a national park because there's still people that live there. There's a nomadic people called the Maasai who still live in this conservation area called Ngorogoro. And it's basically a, a crater where... It's a prehistoric mountain, like a volcano exploded and leveled everything and became this sort of like bowl of wildlife. And you can drive down there and see every, it's sort of this enclosed ecosystem 
where you have zebra and wildebeest and lions and elephants and rhinos and giraffes and everything just sort of living in this like bowl and they're all surviving off the land surviving off each other but surviving off the flora and fauna and it is just this completely it feels like you're in a fishbowl and you can't be living in real life but it is just this like perfectly preserved ecosystem and i like we drove down you drive down all the hotels sort of there aren't many hotels but there's a few hotels that line the top of the of the crater looking in and so you can see it, it sunrises over it in the morning you're looking out over it and then you drive down and like we drove down and parked the car because we had to put the top up on the safari car and so i stepped out of the car for a second and like stood on the ground and it's like there's a zebra there's like a million zebra there's a million wildebeest there's like three lions hunting a elephant there's four rhino it's like it's just like like nowhere i've ever been and it's like sort of inspiring because you just feel like you're like nowhere you've ever been in your entire life and it was it was like that for me so i i'm i'm doing good i'm still jet lagged i'm very much still sort of still coming down from the process you're the first person i've talked to about it since i've gotten back so i'm still very definitely like buzzing well him, but, he, um, here i was excited yeah. for uh you going to uh sundance but you'll also be dealing with a lot of the um sworn predators coming in from la uh that, that, <laughs> yeah um well um no i i'm very uh, i'm i'm very i'm i'm at a i'm i'm leaving one high, i'm coming down off one high and i'm just ramping up to another high right now it's a uh, you're catching me at a a particularly happy rob right that's, now that's really cool man um yeah. well robert grigsby wilson thanks for being on the podcast it's been absolutely my pleasure thank you so much for having me and uh, mm-hmm. i really appreciate you letting me blah 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 about <laughs> everything <laughs>